Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Emily Hutchinson. And I'm Carly Sharon. And we are here today with one of our own committee members, with Claire Bottini. Thanks very much for being here, Claire. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. It's exciting when we get to interview someone on the editorial board. And the reason we're interviewing you is because you just completed a recent project that has some new results. Can you yeah. start us off by telling us a little bit about that new project you just finished? Yeah, so um, I should maybe explain what is my my uh, PhD uh, project on its own. I was interested in understanding or better understanding how contaminant affects the health of birds. And for this specific project, I was curious about how uh, my contaminants on methyl mercury uh, could affect the seasonal transitioning um, between so the birds and their transition between seasons. So spe- more specifically, the transition between winter to spring. So between a kind of rest, uh, resting state to a reproductive state. And so the birds transition from, okay, so migratory to breeding or migratory to wintering. And so you were looking at what contaminates us particularly. So I was looking into methyl mercury. So to explain a bit more what it is, it's you probably know it's a heavy metal. So that means like any metal, um, it can be have several forms like uh, solid, liquid. And for the case specific of methyl mercury in our planet, it can have an atmospheric form. So it can travel very, very far away from its emission source. Uh, it is mainly produced through minings, especially artisanal mining that you have in South, uh, South America, where people will use mercury to bind the gold that they can find in the, in the soil and then evaporate this mercury and then the gold stay, um, stay present. So then you can collect gold and become rich. So it's one of the main source of mercury. The other one would be ever kind of industry like paper mill, the main issue with mercury, it's, it's also very, very persistent. So once it's there, it stays there. Once it's in the environment, it can uh, accumulate in the biota and it will bioaccumulate or bag new species that have a unit of one. The predator that will eat this prey will maybe have, they will eat several prey. So if will maybe have a unit of five and then the predator that eat this first predator will have a unit of 10 or 20. So the uh, mercury will increase in concentration throughout the, uh, the food chain. And once it reaches a high level, level mercury can have very deleterious effect on the health, on the brain, on the physiology of human, fish, whatever animal you can find, even plants. I should maybe specify that mercury or mercury uh, natural contaminants, so it's produced by volcanic eruption, for example, but human activity increases the level that we have in our environment. And the issue is not mercury on its own. It's a specific chemical form that we call methyl mercury, which is in the environment is naturally produced through uh, bacteria. That during the natural bacterial process that you have in a certain soil or aquatic environment, if you do not have oxygen, some bacteria will have a non-oxygen cycle to continue their life. And during this cycle, if they have mercury, they will absorb it and transform it into methyl mercury, which is a contaminant that will bioaccumulate, biomagnify, and have the its effect in the, in, the, in the animals. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. It sounds like it's a complicated process, but uh, 
the mercury gets there somehow, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so there's mining and then the mercury comes and then, and then the birds. And so where do the birds play in? So later, so you have mercury in aquatic habitat, which is the main uh, area where um, mercury will be produced. So you have mercury in algae, then that will get eaten by fish or that will accumulate in aquatic uh, insects. And then those aquatic insects emerge from aquatic habitat and uh, spread through terrestrial habitat where birds are. So you have, for example, spiders that have this accumulation of mercury within birds that can reach really high level and level high enough to have effect or impacts on the population. So my question was to better understanding what are those impacts and do the level that we have naturally in our environment are, are considered uh, okay by our government, do those levels are acceptable or maybe do we, is there something that we don't know and we need to reevaluate what is happening on uh, wild population? I uh, should maybe specify that the impact of mercury mercury is very well known in human, but not very well known in uh, wildlife. So that's why my study coming is to better understanding what is happening for wildlife and more specifically birds. And so there was several studies before mine, but most of the study looked into contaminant effects during only a specific time point. So during exposure to a contaminant and stop after that. So if the exposure stopped, the study stopped. While in the wild, the bird will maybe eat an insect contaminated with mercury, fly away, and they will be fine. Or they will stay on a one breeding area for three, four months, or one wintering area for three, four months, be contaminated there, and then fly to another area or migrate. So what is happening on those birds after the exposure? So yeah, that's where my study came in. It was a question of not only post-exposure effect, but I'll maybe specify or explain what is happening in birds with a season. So let's start with a maybe simple idea, simple question about how or why birds start singing in spring more than in the other season. So in spring, let's start with a comparison with mammals. Any animals are in human as well have a perception of time. So we can, for example, know when to eat, when to sleep, when to do other things. And part of how we know when it's time to do things, it's come from uh, the, the light perception. So light will tell us, okay, it's day, it's time to be active, it's night, it's time to sleep. And in human and more so the mammal, any mammal I know of, in fact, this uh, what we call so photo, photo period cue. So this lights a signal, go through your eyes, go to a connection into your brain that will activate a specific hormone that will activate over hormone and uh, physiological pathway. A cool fact about birds is that their skull is so thin that they, this light signal do not need to go through the eyes. The light signal can directly go through the skull and activate the photoreceptor within the brain directly. Personally, I find that pretty cool. <laughs> so in spring, you have an increase of daylight and that's the signal that will start the transitioning between winter to a reproductive uh, a phenotype or reproductive mode, if you want. So that's the, my, my second um, kind of cool fact about birds. They need to fly and they usually need to save energy. During winter and over non-breeding periods, they do not have any reproductive tract, do not or at least very, very low reproductive tract and very, very lightweight gonads. They almost have nothing. 
they cannot reproduce, so their gonads and reproductive tract completely decrease up to the point of being absent. And through this light signal cue, it will stimulate the brain that will stimulate, that will secrete a hormone called a gonadotropin releasing hormones, it's GNRH for short, that will circulate within the body, stimulate another endocrine or hormonal glands, will signal to the gonads to, that will start to grow and start um, producing its own hormones that you probably know about testosterone or estrogen. So this hormone will start uh, increasing in spring because you have this uh, light signal that goes um, stimulate the brain first. So the hormones, of, uh, the gonads grow that will increase the testosterone and those gonadal hormones will then feed back into the brain and will activate some areas of the brain that will start to grow as well, which we don't have as human. So in birds, that's the third, third cool fact about birds, they have a lot of plasticity within the brain. And more specifically, uh, we have area that we call the song control system, which are area needed for the, by the bird to be able to sing. So it's for song perception of, of a conspecific, but also produce their own song. And in spring, due to this gonadal growth that we produce androgen hormones that we signal to the brain, the brain will start growing those song control areas and the birds will start singing more. And notably, they will have producing more new cells. Um, it, yeah, it's a lot of different pathway, but I found this, this being pretty cool. So you have this whole change, physiological and neuronal between winter to breeding. Does that make sense as well? So, yeah, that's really neat. That's so cool that they have that they can do that. <laughs> yeah. And so where my study come in is I emitted the hypothesis that because mercury creates damages, but also take energy away for depression or damage repair or for other um, metabolic or physiological disruption like endocrine disruption or metabolic disruption, because it will disrupt so many things within the body. I had the idea or the hypothesis that this transition between winter to spring would be uh, disrupted as well. And I wanted to look into that. Um, so what I did, I captured the bird, bring them into captivity during winter, or at least kept them during winter. And during this period, wintering period, I uh, exposed them to Murphy Mercury. I gave them these uh, light cues to tell them, hey, start to start transitioning toward breeding. And then I collected, of course, throughout this experiment, uh, numerous uh, measure like uh, hormones, um, many hormones, in fact, and measure, different measure in gonads and brain, of course. So, um, yeah, it was, I should specify that it's not only during exposure, but also kept uh, looking to the birds after the exposure ended for another month or so. At least it should have been a, a bit more than a month when COVID started and I had to cut short in the experiment. So, hey, that's uh, what my study was. Any question on the uh, design or was that clear enough? Yeah, I'm just wondering, how did you expose them to methyl mer mercury? Because you were saying earlier that it could be in the atmosphere, it could be in the bacteria, it could bioaccumulate. So how, how did you give it to them? Was it in their food? Yes, exactly. It's for food. Maybe I should mention, uh, so methylmercury is not within the atmosphere. Mercury is within the atmosphere, ah, but not okay. the chemical form methylmercury. 
So okay. do not start to worry. We don't brief Mephi Mercury all day long. <laughs> we, uh, we can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we're safe. It is in the food for. So if you eat tuna in large quantity, you can be exposed. Mm-hmm. So that's why notably it's recommended for pregnant women to eat a low, a low quantity of certain fish like tuna. Uh, and birds, yeah, if they eat insects in contaminated area, they will, uh, they will get exposed. So I, yeah, I, create, I created, I use technique and knowledge from previous study in, uh, in biology programming at Western University. We are able to create a synthetic food that is equivalent to what the birds will eat in the wild. But because it's synthetic, I can add other compounding to it. And so that's what, how I added uh, methylmercury. So it's come through a, a vial that is liquid. And so I can just mix it with water and create this batch of kind of jelly, <laughs> a bit more solid than jelly. And I can grind that and give it to the birds. And they eat it happily and they, they are super healthy. So I had the uh, mercury-exposed bird and I compared it to, to birds that eat the same jelly food, but that was not contaminated with methylmercury. So I could compare both uh, together. And what kind of results did you see when you did that comparison? So interestingly, with with all my thinking and theory behind it, I found no results. I had full null results, so which is good for the birds. <laughs> that means the methylmercury exposure during winter will not delay their reproductive onset. Um, so yeah, I may, maybe mentioned I should I should mention that my main goal was to see if methylmercury could be could delay or advance the transition between winter to spring so um and yeah testosterone was not affected the uh, gonadotropin releasing hormones of this uh, hormones at the base of the uh, signal for reproduction uh, was not affected Uh, gonads were the same so reproduction was not affected so that means reproduction for birds and probably over animals is so important that they, they found physiological ways to prevent harm from contaminants, at least from mercury at the dose uh, I exposed them to. However, I should mention as well that I selected a dose of exposure that is known to affect reproduction in bird. So it's not that my dose did not have effects in a previous uh, experiment of mine, a dose slightly lower had effect on their migratory behavior, had effect on their mold duration, had effect on several other hormones. So it's not that it doesn't have effect, it's just to not have effect on reproductive onset. Um, so that's kind of pretty cool for another result. Um, where some result I found is that one hormone called corticosterone, which is a hormone associated with stress. So usually if uh, if you stress or in a, if you are in a dangerous uh, situation, this hormone will uh, increase in large quantity and will it's aimed to redirect energy to help you has- escape or uh, take the impact of the perturbation. Um, so these hormones, after this light signal, uh, started to increase in methylmercury exposed birds, but not in control birds. And where it's interesting, it's that two things. First of all, this increase only occurs after the exposure to methylmercury. So it's a post-exposure effect that was not detected during exposure. The second interesting thing is that this hormone, if it goes in too high level, it has deleterious effect as well. So it's good to have it and to have it respond to stress, 
but it's not good to have it high for long enough term. And so potentially if my experiment was lasting a bit longer than it had, uh, this hormone could have then have long-term effect on the reproductive behavior of birds. So I do not know, no more study will need to uh, look into that a bit more, but I have this effect on this specific hormone. Another um, interesting result I have is that about cloacal protuberance. Um, in birds, basically, when they start to be on reproductive mode, their butt will start to come out. Basically, it's like a little bump on their, on their butt. And mm -hmm. in male, it serves to uh, store sperm and uh, be more uh, performant during reproduction um, or during mating, let's say. So I me measure basically the volume of this little bump. Um, and in methylmercury-exposed birds, this bump was not increasing as much in volume compared to control birds. So it's not an effect linked to a reproductive hormone because testosterone was no, have, had no difference between treatment, but something was going on. I tested the correlation with this corticosterone hormone. There was no correlation. So something else is going on. It's maybe a methylmercury direct effect on the development of this uh, part of a part of a bird. <laughs> I don't know. And the last piece of information that I had um, is on the brain. So methylmercury is a very well-known neurotoxicant in human. So it will affect the brain. It will affect the vision of people that are contaminated. Um, if uh, a pregnant woman is uh, contaminated with methylmercury, the fetus will not have uh, as high IQ or has a cognitive performance that a non-contaminated uh, kid. So it has a lot of effect of these contaminants. And so the bird in the brain of the bird I had, I didn't find a lot of effect, but I found one effect on neurogenesis. So neurogenesis is basically the production of new neurons within the brain. I mentioned that during spring, the light cue will stimulate through uh, cascading events of through the gonads and everything will feedback to the brain and we start increasing the volume of some areas. And so the neurogenesis happened to increase this volume. So new cells come in and then the volume increase. Um, and in one sound control area, this neurogenesis was reduced in uh, the mercury exposed bird. And how or why is it important? It's this specific uh, sound control area has been linked in prior, prior study to be very important for singing behavior. And singing behavior is really important for mating success and uh, productivity and just find a partner and have a young skid, uh, yeah, have eggs and nest. So if mercury impacts this area or impact the cell production within this area, maybe, I say maybe because I didn't measure it, but maybe the bird uh, will not be able to sing as well to be performant enough to find a mate and maybe not be able to reproduce on the long term. Once again, I don't know. It's just pure speculation. So more studies are needed, but it's kind of interesting result that reproductive onset is not affected, but potentially reproductive performance will be. So do you have any plans to take this project further? Like you have, it seems like you have some questions answered, but there are so many more. Uh, are you planning on looking into all these questions or are you going to move on to something else? Where, where's your research going? I would love to continue, but I 
need to defend my PhD very soon. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I will leave this, uh, this kind of project ideas to someone else. Um, it's this kind of question require very long uh, long term experiment. So I don't I do not have a time anymore at least during my PhD. So maybe if I become a researcher and have a lot of money, I will continue on this project. I would love to. But yeah, now right now I am defending or aim to defend, and then I've uh, found another postdoc opportunity on uh, other contaminants, but still in bird. I'm just curious, like you say you don't have any time, like how long it takes to do one of these experiments, like from exposure to analyzing all the different hormones or any kind of physical changes, like what is kind of the time frame for that? It's a good question. Um, so my first experiments where I looked in the transition between uh, breeding into a uh, fall migratory transition, I had six months long experiment with a bird. So it's long time. The, yeah. I, the idea behind my project is to have a three month long exposure to methylmercury because it's the time, uh, approximate the time that the bird may stay on a breeding area or wintering area. So you have already three months of exposure. But before that, you need to capture the birds, have them habituated into captivity, start habituating them to the synthetic diet. Uh, then you have post-exposure measurements, uh, which for me was three months in my first experiment and one month in the second experiment, thanks COVID. And, um, and then you have your sample, you have your measure and you need to analyze that. And for hormones, it's not that complicated. See, maybe for corticosterone, it maybe took me a month. Helps. Yeah, all hormones together, maybe a month or two. But you need to teach, you need to learn how to do it. So it takes time. And when I say a month, you have to understand that it's in addition to classes, in addition to other administrative stuff. So it's all cumulated. It will probably take a month if I have only that to do. But it, overall, because I had other things to do, it took me a full term. Uh, brain measure, you can take a full year doing doing that easily just to stain the yeah stain the tissue and then look into the microscope and yeah easily a full year it probably took me two <laughs> so it takes time <laughs> research takes time patience and a lot of efforts perseverance a lot of, will, be, will be your best yeah. skill yeah a lot of different skills too like you were doing like many different things like you have to you were getting a really full picture of what's going on with the reproduction so you had to learn a lot of different techniques uh, actually, that brings me to another question. Uh, which technique did you like the best? Like, which part of that analysis was most interesting to you? Hmm. I would say hormones. Just mm -hmm. because hormones are so, hormonal balance is so important for the bird's health or every, every organism's health. So it's a skill that I can take everywhere. And if I change animal of study, like if I want to work on mice or snake, this hormone and the technique that goes with it uh, will basically stay the same because most animals share the same hormone. So I can, yeah, once I know how to do it, I can use it again and again and I'm fine. Um, Why I was kind of proud during my PhD is that I developed uh, an assay to measure corticosterone in fecal sample, which starts to, to be known uh, or to be used now. But most of the time, if you want to take hormones that need to grab that require you to grab the birds, take a blood sample, then take the plasma out of it. So centrifuge it, take the plasma, and the hormone will be in the plasma. So that's a lot of stress for a bird. And uh, stress is not, as mentioned, maybe not so good. 
So instead for corticosterone, I uh, looked into their poop because this hormone will be uh, transferring to the fecal matter. And I was able to quantify this stress hormone or this corticosterone hormone within the poop. So the bird were just happy in their home cage and I was just collecting poop and everyone was happy. So yeah, it's a skill that I can reuse later on. So yeah, I would say hormone. Easy peasy. Uh, I want to ask what study species did you use and why did you choose it? And do you think that the results would be the same for all birds? Or do you think that, that certain different types of birds would have, have different results? That's a very good question. Um, so I use a, a little brown bird that you have usually in your backyard that is called song sparrow. So it's a bird that is usually associated with uh, aquatic habitats. So you can find it in shrub or even uh, light forest area, but it needs water. So that's why it's a kind of good model species for methylmercury contamination, because I mentioned you have methylmercury in some certain aquatic habitats and then aquatic emergent insect can be eaten by, uh, by this bird. So it is exposed naturally to methylmercury. Um, and it's very, very common. So even if I bring some in captivity, uh, I will not affect the population. It's very well known in research as well. So it's we know previously that it held well in captivity and do not have weird behavior. Uh, we know how to feed it, how to take hormone from it. Uh, so it's very well used uh, bird. Uh, his neurology, it's always, uh, it's also very, very well known. So I can you just reuse what was previously done in uh, other research. And this, this species was really, uh, very relevant for methylmercury uh, contamination as well. So that's why I, I chose it. Um, about your question of how, how my finding on that species can uh, relate to other species. It's very, very, very good question because you're right, several species or some species are more sensitive to the same uh, contaminant or to the same stress cue uh, than others. There are very few studies who compare species though, because we do not know if it's a phylogenetic or so if it's a species difference or is it something else within the physiology um, that can affect the sensitivity? Or, but the main, so I do not have answer for you because I do not have a comparison for other species for song sparrow. For some paper, uh, they found effect of methylmercury in testosterone, for example. So some of the birds like the uh, tree swallows or the bank swallow maybe exposed, first of all, to higher level of mercury, but may also be more sensitive to this contaminant. So potentially, song sparrows are very, very resistant. <laughs> so that's maybe one of the reasons I didn't find the effect on this reproductive uh, onset. So yeah, it's something to keep in mind, but I do not have answer. I do not know if it's more or less sensitive. I would have a guess that is maybe more resistant because I did not find any, uh, any effect on the reproductive onset while Usually this dose I expose it to is known to have effect on reproduction. So I was expecting uh, to see something. I'm just curious what got you into this like field of study, interested in this research? Do you just like birds or were you more interested in like kind of contaminant side of things or what drew you to this project? Hmm, um, I would say a bit of both. It's at some point in my life after my master, I was very, very lost. Didn't know where to go, didn't know what to do, didn't have a lot of options to me. And so to kind of give me a bit more option and give me a bit more ideas, I started to do a lot of volunteering, but also read a lot of scientific paper. 
And one of the paper I that kind of hooked me, it was a paper of Rimmer et al. on 2005. I think it's the first paper that ever measured Matthew Mercury or total or Mercury within birds. It was on Bicknell thrushes. It's a very endemic species in some uh, one particular species in one particular area in uh, in Canada or in US. Um, and you find surprisingly very very high level of mercury in this bird that is fully terrestrial. So he didn't he didn't know at, at the time how mercury was cycling through the environments. So he was just reporting this this information that hey, insectivorous birds have or can have high level of mercury. And then it's another paper later on that uh, went into a contaminated area and wanted to see how far the mercury was spreading within a contaminated environment and he measured uh, fish, aquatic emergent insects, uh, birds, and other, uh, I think he even measured uh, plants. Uh, so it's a paper from Crystal et al. Uh, 2008. And we have the first paper that fully proved that mercury from aquatic habitat was able to spread in terrestrial habitat. So it's a field very, very new. And from this first uh, to, uh, 2005 paper, it kind of stayed in an area of my mind saying, why, why do we have high contaminant level? And at the time, I did not have any knowledge or formation in toxicology. And not a lot in physiology or neuroscience at, <laughs> at all. But I did a lot of volunteering right and left and end up uh, working for Scott, my current supervisor, for a couple of months. And after a discussion with him and with other people, yeah, we had this discussion about how does stressor and contaminant affect the bird's health and throughout time, throughout, uh, throughout different measures. So little by little, through discussion and through meeting other people, this project came up and I talked to Scott and basically said, okay, if you find the funding, I will have you as my PhD student. And I got the funding from Western University. I'm super grateful for that. And ta-da, I'm here. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, it's it sounds like it's really important and very interesting work. So I'm glad that you found your way to it. And uh, thanks very much for coming on the show. It's been awesome to hear about what you've been doing. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Yeah, it was a pleasure. <laughs> this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Emily Hutchinson, and my co-host was Carly Sheeran. We've been speaking with Claire Bottini. And this episode was produced by me, Emily Hutchinson. If you would like to be involved with the show or get into contact with us, you can email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. And to listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM. And you can find all of our episodes wherever you find your lovely podcast. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.